Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. The managing editor of LARB. Sure am. Hi. So tell me who's on the show this week. This week, we are lucky to have Mary Gateskill on the show. Yes. Um, yeah, it was really exciting. Mary Gateskill doesn't need an introduction, but... I'll just do a very quick one. She's the author of Bad Behavior, Veronica, Oh yeah, The Mayor. She has a collection of essays that just recently came out called Somebody with a Little Hammer. So we had Mary Gateskill in town in Los Angeles, and we did an evening with her at Tom Lutz's house. Tom is the editor-in-chief of the Ellery Reeve Books. And we were lucky enough to have her there and in conversation with Tom and one of our senior editors, Lori Weiner. Mm. And it was great. Uh, I'm so heartbroken I missed that event, but I'm glad I can listen to it. Yeah, Mary Gateskill is a really wonderful writer, but and I'm also an amazing personality, and we were very, very happy to have her. Mm. So cool. Super cool. She's and my favorite writer. I drove her from the hotel Ooh. to the location, which was both exciting for me and a little nerve-wracking and I think I made a lot of weird conversations. She could be intimidating, I'm sure. Though lovely. Yeah. Also very lovely. Right. Right. All right. Should we listen? Oh, please. Yes. I'm not going to do a standard introduction for Mary Gateskill because I think that you're all here because you know who Mary Gateskill is because you love Mary Gateskill the way that I do and that's why you've come because for me... Over and over again, I find that the thing that Mary manages to do is to bring me to some kind of understanding of a thing that I did not know was a thing until she brought me to understand it. And uh, that's the thing. one of the things I'm going to talk about. Lori and I are both going to ask a few questions, just a couple little ones, because we want to bring you in as well. So as Mary's going to read a, a short section from her new collection of essays. And then, Lori and I, we haven't corrupted the crime scene. We haven't talked too much about what we're going to no. ask. So we may ask the same question, which would be odd. But if not, we'll ask a couple, and then we'll turn it over to you. So be ready. But first, Mary Gateskill. Um, thank you. Am I, in, am I in a good place on the mic? Well, I feel I owe you an explanation. My voice is really, either I'm really sick or I'm allergic, but my voice is completely screwed up. And my throat was swollen, and and a really well-meaning friend of mine helpfully offered me some of her very legal medical marijuana. (laughs) And she said it was just a tiny sliver. (laughs) It looked kind of big to me, but I said, it's just pot, and I ate it, and I am really fucked up. (laughs) I mean... I, my leg is here on this chair because I'm not sure I can successfully stand up. <laughs> so, because of these impairments, it may not be my most powerful performance, but <laughs> thank you for being here, and I'll do my best. I'm reading a very small section of a piece I wrote about Linda Lovelace, who came to my attention in a slightly unusual way recently. So, I'm just reading for that. Icon of freedom and innocent carnality icon of brokenness and confusion, icon of a wound turned into or disguised as a pleasure source, icon of sexual victimization, sexual power, irreconcilable oppositions, 
icon of 1970s America, icon of every woman. And just another skinny white girl with average looks and a little flat voice, a type you barely notice, even if some version of her is everywhere. I saw Linda Lovelace in Deep Throat because my boyfriend was a projectionist at a hippie film co-op. It was 1972 and I was 17. My boyfriend was 25 and neither one of us was interested in porn, which we thought of as a corny old person thing. But Deep Throat, an X-rated comedy about a woman whose clitoris is in her throat, was supposed to be something different. And we were curious and eventually won over by the film's dirty goofballery. She just seemed to like it so much, said my boyfriend, and his voice was not salacious as much as tickled. I liked the movie too. It was funny. But liking and arousal are very different. I was not excited by Deep Throat, and the only thing I could really remember about it afterwards was Lovelace's sweet smile and the strange expression in her eyes, a look that I could not define and still can't, a look that was not happy, yet which seemed to go with her smile. I was, however, wildly excited by the next movie I saw at the co-op, a film that on the face of it has nothing to, in common with Deep Throat, but which remains in my imagination weirdly linked with the porn comedy. It was Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, an emotionally stunning silent film made in 1928 about the persecution, psychological torture, and death of an inexplicably, helplessly powerful 19-year-old girl. I'm sure it sounds ridiculously arty, but trust me, my reaction was not artistic. I was horrified by this film but so also moved and so aroused that I was embarrassed to be in public. Even in the dark, I was embarrassed. I do not like images of persecution or torture or death, but liking was irrelevant. Passion demanded a powerful response, and so my body gave it. Anyway, in 1990, when Linda Lovelace wrote a book, about her experience called Ordeal, and then joined Catherine McKinnon's anti-porn movement, I fleetingly remembered her strange, sweet-eyed smile and how different it seemed from the woman claiming that anyone who watched Deep Throat was watching her being raped. I was vaguely sad, but not surprised. It seemed just one more piece of senseless shit flying by. Fast forward to 2012 when not one but two mainstream biopics about Linda Lovelace were being made at the same time. I learned of these films because of a brief involvement with a guy who had some vague connection with one of the films as well as very strong opinions on its subject. He felt nothing but contempt for Lovelace, whom he described as a deeply stupid liar who refused to take responsibility for any of her actions, including her participation in free-throat porn loops, particularly one in which she enthusiastically received a dog. He told me that in Ordeal she claimed, among other things, that she was forced by her husband, pimp Chuck Trainer, to do the dog, but that everyone knew it was a lie, that she was into it, that is, she liked it which was all news to me, but I shrugged and said, 
Well, I don't blame her. We've all done stuff that, even if it wasn't embarrassing at the time, it would be embarrassing if it was put up on a public movie screen. Besides, she had kids. Would you want to talk about dog-fucking with them? Yeah, but my friend said, then she turned on women against pornography and said they used her too. Well, they probably did. I said, those women are bonkers. He retorted, but then she posed for a magazine called Leg Show. To which I said, well, so what? That's not really porn, and she probably needed the money. We changed the subject and broke up that night. Thanks. I'll ask the first question. Any of you out there who know me probably know who gave Mary the edible, and I apologize for ruining the evening. She said it's so small, it's, it might not even affect you. <laughs> On the theme of American culture and Puritanism, I wanted to start by asking you, um, in your one of your essays in this new book, A Small Hammer, you talk about a review that was in Time magazine. It was a review of your book, Two Girls, Fat and Thin. The reviewer wished that fiction did not diminish men and women, but rather raise our vision of both. And when I read that, it reminded me of something Pauline Kael used to do a lot in her reviews, which she would say, I'm embarrassed that I have to explain this. And then she would explain why that was bullshit. You do this so beautifully and kind of benevolently in your essay. You explain why art does not have to elevate it seems to be a discussion that every generation seems to have again and again. It seems, you know, amazing that we have to re-litigate this discussion about whether characters in fiction should be elevating, morally elevating in some way. And because you you write about it so well, I wanted to ask you about a kind of similar problem, which is the talk today about appropriation, cultural appropriation, and the muddy area where it bleeds over into what writers should and should not be writing about or characters that they should or should not be taking on. Do you have anything to say about that muddy area of the cultural appropriation discussion? Well, here's where the issue of the edible comes in, because my brain was like following about five different Pat, you were saying well, about... I may have... No, no, it was a really good... Okay, that was a complex mouthful you just said. But I think you ended on, what did I feel about the issue of cultural appropriation? Well, when I hear it, I become annoyed. Because it sounds to me like some... I was trying to talk to someone today about how... Well, I'm going to go back around... It depends on the problem. I'm going to talk for 10 minutes now. But I was talking today about how, although I loathe Donald Trump, I probably don't know any, well, I do know one person who voted for him, but only one person. And I would in no way support him. I sometimes understand at least one place where his supporters seem to be coming from. And that is that I really, really, really hate political correctness. It's a real thing. It exists. And I'm more affected by it than most people because I'm in academia. And that is a very politically correct phrase. So when I hear that kind of phrase, it right away almost pushes a cringe button for me because I imagine there are at times moments where it's appropriate or <laughs> where it was accurate to say that some artist had appropriated something that he or she had no right to. There might be instances in which that would actually be true if someone understood absolutely nothing about what they were trying to write about and yet wanted to write about it for some external reason, you might say that. 
But it seems like it's used a lot more often than that. Like if you have any kind of feature that might have been used by, say, from another country or another race, you've stolen something somehow and you're real. That just seems idiotic to me. But does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. I seem to remember it came up in some of the reviews of the mayor as well. You mean they said I did or didn't? Saying that you did. Uh, that, oh, right? oh. Well, I'm not surprised. And honestly, I did give it some thought. By the way, if any of you disagree with me about this, please say so, because I'm interested in the subject, although, again, it might not be the best time to talk about it with me. But when I was writing The Mayor, I did... It wasn't even, could I do I have the right to do this? Because plainly I do. We all have the right to do anything in the realm of the imagination, and we can put it on paper if we like. But it wasn't that so much as, can you do this without making a complete idiot of yourself? That was more my thought. I didn't feel like I was stealing anything because honestly, if you're wandering into something that you don't know anything about, you wouldn't even know what to steal. You don't know enough about it to steal from it even. So it wasn't that I thought that, but sometimes I felt like I didn't have sufficient depth of knowledge. And I still feel that honestly about the book. I like to, when I write, understand things all the way through. And usually if it's my own imagination or my own experience, whichever, I can do that. I can wait as long as I can, need to, to go all the way through. But in that case, I couldn't totally because I didn't know all the way in. I knew certain layers of it and maybe all the way in in certain spots, but I didn't know all the way in. So sometimes I thought, this is just not right to be representing this. But then also I remembered when I wrote my first novel, Two Girls Fat and Thin, which largely set in a place near Detroit where I grew up, Livonia. I described it exactly right from my point of view down to the broken Amjoy sign. But a critic in Detroit, who was obviously didn't like it, called me up to also, I guess it was his job, and he had to do an interview with me. And he said, so why did you pick the Detroit area for this story? Do you even know anything about it? <laughs> like, yeah, I grew up there. And he obviously like didn't believe me because the Detroit suburb that recorded had nothing to do with his. So it's almost like that's what I would think is a counterweight, that I'm not bound to represent this reality according to what X number, Y and Z Dominican people might say any more than I am bound to do it according to how X number of Detroiters might, <laughs> might see their place of residence. I have a question about the mayor. For you guys who maybe haven't read it, Mary did have an experience with two children that she fostered from the Fresh Air Fund. They were from the Dominican Republic. And she wrote this book, The Mayor, about the girl. It was a girl and a boy, but the book is about the girl. And this isn't a literary question, so I apologize for that. But my question was, when I read it, I, I was thinking, you know, was it a way of saying to the girl herself that you understood more than she may have known about her reality and your own reality, your own complicity or f mistakes? Or was it a piece in the relationship with the girl writing the book? Well, it, because it was fiction, it departed from reality sure. at a certain point. I mean, I certainly wrote it because of her. It would never have occurred to me if I didn't know her. But the girl in the book is a very different character from the girl in real life. I did not tell a real life story. I wish I had. I mean, I wish I had because the common is better, but I'm not, I'm not sure how to... Is that basically your question? Mm -hmm. How closely was it based on her? No, it was whether writing the book was a piece of the puzzle in the relationship 
with the actual girl, whether you were saying something to her by writing the book, which was that you understood her reality perhaps more than than she or you knew at no, the time. No, I don't think she would think so. <laughs> okay. It wasn't really of a piece. It started out, like I said, I would never have written it if it hadn't been for her. And also I had, this is embarrassing almost to say, but I actually had a sort of Disney fantasy for a while. I saw a little film bit of National Velvet on somebody's TV set, and I thought somebody should write a story like that about a Latina girl who could do that. Not me, certainly. But that was kind of the trigger for it, and... I did have the idea that I could create something like that for her, which was, I was disabused of very quickly. It was a really stupid idea because I wrote a Disney story at first, basically. Anyway, it very quickly became very different from my relationship or being a part of my relationship with her. I mean, I would like her to read it. I gave it to her, and I hope she reads it. She started to, and I asked her if she'd read it, and she said I started to, but I had too many feelings. So... But she'll read it probably sometime in the future. I would guess so. Yeah. I might even ask her to or try to get her to, but because I would want to, I don't know, I just want to know what she felt about it. For me anyway, I don't know how she would feel, but for me it became something very different. I mean, the girl in my mind when I was writing the scenes didn't even look like the real girl at all. And I mean, she had to become a different person. Mm. One of the things that um, people say about your work very often has to do with questions of failed connection with questions of loneliness and of course your ex-husband has famously said that you were the loneliest person that he'd ever met when i read your work i think that you are a wonderful chronicler of loneliness but that it's not that you don't approach it like it's some kind of curable condition that you're interested in loneliness because there's something about Loneliness, which is inevitable, we do it to ourselves. It's the human condition, and therefore, it's kind of great at the same time. There is no cure. There is perhaps better and worse ways to understand it, and that's what you're interested in. Is that fair to say? It's fair, but by the way, he's not my ex-husband anymore. We got back together. Okay. Uh, but, but that's right. But he did. Yeah. But loneliness, you know what? There are rarely subjects that I purposefully take on. Like I've never thought I'm going to write about loneliness or I am writing about loneliness. Or it's unusual. I have occasionally had that kind of fairly abstract subject in mind when I wrote something. But not very often, usually not. So I don't think of myself as writing about loneliness, so I would certainly say that many of my characters are lonely, and I don't think it's a grand condition at all. I've known a lot of very lonely people. I don't know if everybody's lonely. I don't know if we make ourselves lonely. I think some people kind of get born into it for various reasons, whether they're sociological or familial or biological. And... I mean, it's, I don't know, it's sad. I find it sad. The people that I knew who were lonely really suffered. And they could not, they didn't know how to get out of their loneliness. And I would say led almost half lives. I mean, sometimes people have actually said to me, you write about people that, who don't have any friends. Everybody's got friends. And I was like, mm, no, actually that's not true. But, you know, the Veronica, for instance, or... I mean, I think even in The Mayor, which is about all sorts of connection, the people remain kind of unable to fully explain themselves to each other, and they don't really kind of even, they don't, they don't even come close in all sorts of ways. But 
that's okay because I'm feeling like I'm going to become Michael Silverblatt. I'm going to just ask you a question that's going to take an hour and a half, well, and you're going to have to say yes at the it's end. It's like coming off of me and hitting everybody. <laughs> but I do feel like the emotional truths that you get to are about, I see it almost like a Venn diagram of 17 different emotions, all of which have this little tiny sliver, smaller than the edible that you ate, where they all connect, and that you bring us there through 17 different narrative strains that all lead us to that moment. And that moment is almost always a moment in which the person who we're feeling with is alone. It's not a moment when that person is having a moment of connection. The moments of connection are beautiful and great and wonderful, but the truth of the story, the truth of the novel, tends to this moment of aloneness. It's not the same as loneliness, I understand that. Well, I never thought about that. It could just be because it's simpler to write elaborate thoughts with the character by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and not so you're just lazy. <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, but it's, an, it's a really interesting thing to say. I, I don't know if I can improve upon it or explicate it. It's funny, I think people sometimes think that I know, like you were saying earlier, I understand I brought you to a place of understanding. I don't think I understand much of anything, honestly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if I stare really hard at something and think about it enough, I do, but I have to spend a lot of time staring and thinking. Meanwhile, the world is exploding around me and I don't understand a fucking thing. I wish somebody that term mansplain. I don't care about the gender. Somebody explain this to me. <laughs> this is beastly <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. So we're lucky to have back in the studio today, Janet Sarbanes, whose new book of short stories is called The Protester Has Been Released. And Janet has a book recommendation for us. Yes. Actually, I'm breaking the rules here. I have two. I wanted to do one that was old and one that was new, if that's okay. That's great. All right. But nobody else do this. (laughs) (laughs) The old one is a book of short stories called The Censors by Luisa Valenzuela, who's an Argentine writer. And that's a collection of short stories that was first published in 1976. So that was the year the military dictatorship came to power there. And I find that it's really good to read in our particular political moment because of this sort of shift in power and the ways in which freedoms and rights are being rolled back and assaulted. And I really admire how Valenzuela employs the surreal and the absurd to kind of illuminate the indignities and the idiocies and the horror of authoritarian rule. And the title story, The Censors, is a great example. It's about a young man who's writes a love letter to his sweetheart and then realizes that the censors are going to get it and it's going to get her in trouble. So he decides he will become a censor. He'll go to work for the censors <laughs> in order to find his letter and retrieve it. But he ends up moving through the department and sort of taking on more and more responsibility and becoming identified himself with being a censor. So that by the time he finds the letter, he censors it and then immediately gives himself over to be executed, oh right? And it's, it's just so absurd, but it's also this great kind of lesson in sort of collaborating with authoritarian sort of structures. 
ostensibly to save someone you love, but that that's a very risky thing. And it's a bilingual edition. It's the only bilingual edition of her work. And so I think it's a really interesting, and that's called The Censors. The new one is a poetry collection by Claudia Cortese, and I, I read with her recently in New York, and I was just so impressed. It's called The Wasp Queen. It's out from Black Lawrence Press, and it features a very memorable character, Lucy, who we decided was like Coco the Gorilla in my in my book. Um, but she sort of romps and rages through Midwestern suburbia. So she's kind of too big and too weird and too angry and too lusty to fit in. And Cortese uses all these different forms to get at this character, like the prose poem list, sonnets. There's even a Mad Lib. There's a multiple choice, but it doesn't feel gimmicky because it sort of puts us in touch with different aspects of Lucy's reality the more attention it gets. And it's funny and it's heartbreaking and it's fierce and I like all those things. So I wanted to recommend that too. Wow, that one sounds good too. Okay, so can you tell me the titles one more time? The first one is The Censors by Luisa Valenzuela and the second one is Wasp Queen by Claudia Cortese. Okay, thank you so much, Janet. Thank you, it's good to be back. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our conversation with Mary Gateskill, whose new book of essays is Somebody with a Little Hammer. I think another thing that you do very well, and again, this may be something you don't feel you can comment on, but you get at the pre-verbal thought, the thought that before we turn it into words, what we feel in our body when we understand something. I have a little quote from a short story that Judith loves. It's from Tiny Smiling Daddy. He felt helplessness move through his body the way a swimmer feels, a large sea creature pass beneath him. To me, that's a kind of classic Mary Gateskill sentence. It's the way we we have a thought before we put it into words. It's like Malcolm Gladwell's blink, what you perceive before you even put it into thought. You're very good at that. And it translates into people who are inarticulate and animals. You represent those kinds of people very, very well. I was wondering if maybe this is some connection to a pre-literary you, you know, before you became well-read and, you know, a master of, of, of the literary. Well, I, I definitely feel like um, we all get a lot of our knowledge and basically knowledge about the world and the people around us through means other than our words. I think even if we don't know we're reading people's body language, we are, and we may be wrong about what it says, but it, the, the way a person moves their mouth, the way a person's eyes look when they speak, if their eyes and their mouth don't agree, it's just, it means something. Huge numbers of little signals that we all recognize before we learn how to speak a language and maybe a little more aware of it than some people seem to be, I don't know. I think it's partly because I really distrust words. It's kind of strange that I'm a writer, really, because I consider myself very inarticulate a lot of the time about what I would like to express and also to try and describe the stuff that you're feeling. I mean, I always feel like I don't know how to talk, particularly now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, when I was younger, I often said I had a great deal of trouble understanding how people communicated and that there just was so much that I felt like I... You know, people, somebody would ask me something and I would just sit there. 
Well, should, so, we, should we do a little experiment and let people ask you questions and see if... Okay, well, I was just, I guess what my point is, I, I think maybe I became a writer to compensate for that. Uh, let me, can I ask one more question before no. we... Yeah, good, no. <laughs> are we going to uh, go inside for the question? No, no, no yeah, soon. We are getting soon, very soon. Yes. No, no, uh, the, the title, A Little Hammer, it's from a Chekhov short story, but I also, it made me think of this quote from John Updike, who said that writing fiction was like sailing on the open sea and writing criticism is hugging the shore. And these are essays. Um, I, I wondered if a little hammer was, uh, you know, kind of a comment about essays or criticism, which are a lesser art form, I think, than fiction, uh, about what you can accomplish in in an essay. And I wondered if a little hammer was a reference to kind of that you, you're working with a very little hammer when you're writing an essay, littler than the house you're building when you write fiction. No, that never <clears throat> that never occurred to me. It's it's just really because of the Chekhov story, and because you, I'm sure you all know it, but just in case somebody doesn't, it's uh, in one of Chekhov's stories. One of the characters is saying uh, <clears throat> he's angry at the inequality of the world, and he's said, "Behind the door of every happy, contented man, there should be somebody with a little hammer, always knocking to remind him that there are unhappy men in the world, and that he, one day life will show him her claws." Etc. Um, so it came from an essay that had concerned that, and a very tiny little essay, as a matter of fact. Oh. But honestly, I just I just liked it as a title for the book. Well, I I, I guess what I what I'm asking is, do you feel that you address you know larger parts uh, swaths of life in fiction than you can in an essay? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that's what I was asking. Um, sh do you want to open up yeah, the... Yeah, take a couple questions from the floor. Sure. Okay, Tom seems, <coughs> Tom seems to be leaving. Um, okay. Um, there's a, oh, there's a microphone there. If anyone has a question uh, for Mary, um, go, go ahead. I should turn on lights, probably. How did you pick the specific reviews? How did you decide on what reviews to include in this collection? Oh, um, well, if I thought that they were about something other than the book, because some of the books, I mean, I think some of the books are just sociologically interesting, like the, Nor the Norman Mailer and somebody, uh, John Updike. I think it's interesting to see them as characters, especially as Norman Mailer I was looking back on in time, <clears throat> to see who those people were and why they're significant, even if at least one of them may not be so much anymore. But other other than that, it was because I thought I wasn't only talking about, like in the one on Dickens' Bleak House, it, it is about Bleak House for sure, but it also has a lot about my idea about reading how to read literature, what matters in literature, even if I don't state it as a separate subject. So that that's how I did. I, I did wonder about having so many of them, because I could just picture people going, why are these here? Um, and I didn't need them, really. The book could have been a lot shorter, but my editor actually... You know, we argued about it, and she advocated for some that I might have might have not included, but uh, several I didn't. I didn't include them all. Uh, both John Optike and Norman Mailer are addressed in these essays, and and there are two two uh, people who were taught, you know, constantly when when I was in college, and really, you know, aren't necessarily taught anymore because of the the sexism, which doesn't cancel out what good writers they are, which you you address. I, I, uh, very fairly, I think, in your 
you know, it, it's it's difficult in these times when anyone who's, who does anything politically incorrect is kind of suspected, but yet every great writer is a man of his or a woman of her his or her time and has limitations. Are you talking about an interview I did? Or? No, well, it's just that you write about both Updike and oh, Mailer oh. in these essays, and they're they're kind of uh, out of fashion right now in academia because of the sexism, which is tangible, along with all of the other talents that they <laughs> and insight that they have. Okay, um, there's uh, Judith. So, um, Mary, I think it was in the New York Times review, which was a really wonderful review in in terms of how much they liked this book of essay. I can't remember who the critic was, but he or she did bring up the idea that one of the essays, and I can't remember which one, dealt so intelligently with the subject of politics that he wished that you had even written more about that because you were such a depth commentator on, and, and I'm sorry, I can't remember which essay it was, and I haven't read the collection. I, I know but which ones. It was about the 2008 election. Right. Yeah. Are you tempted to write more about politics, or is that something that doesn't attract you at all? I mean, or both? I, mean. um, I think he was a little bit mistaken in his idea. Um, my, the pieces that I <clears throat> wrote do have to do with politics tangentially, but one of them was a very short thing I did for a French newspaper that no longer exists, uh, Liberation. Is that how you pronounce it? Liberation, basically. And they, uh, it was a, a diary form where I would just write very short bits on, you know, for eight days of the election that I happened to be covering that week. Other writers did it too. And it was very impressionistic. And there was nothing knowledgeable about it or profound. It was my intuitive, uh, almost physical reactions to the candidates. And I described them and I had some opinions, but I, it showed no real political knowledge. And uh, the other thing I wrote about, which had to do with that, was the wives of men who've been adult, like Mark's, uh, Bill Clinton, um, was it Mark Elliot Spitzer? Elliot Spitzer, um, cuckolded wives, basically. Or I, I wrote about how I was really sick and tired of seeing the women described as humiliated and tortured, and was like, leave them alone, quit, quit heaping that crap on their head. And that had to do with politics and how we look at political figures, but again, not, not from a position of any kind of knowledge. I don't know enough to comment on politics, really. That doesn't stop some people, but, but uh, I, I really don't know enough. But you talked about seeing Sarah Palin uh, at her uh, um, debut uh, and uh, feeling that she was a sadist, um, feeling just innately this feeling about her. I think, I mean, I just wonder, I mean, we all... It's very obvious. I mean, Trump doesn't hide who he is, but I, you know, how how would you you talk about how it's um, a flashpoint for for public feelings? Um, I mean, I, I I think I'm just curious about what you make of Donald Trump at, at the moment. Oh God, I mean, probably what everyone here has been able to make of him. He talks like a, a crazy child. He's, people say he's really clever. I, I, I don't even see that really. He just seems like somebody who has no control of himself. And he, he does occasionally strike, strike me as shrewd. I too speculate sometimes about his relationship with Melania, with whom I have an unnatural sympathy. Even though I don't think she's a victim or being held prisoner or anything like that, I just think at a young age she got sucked into this guy's world and whatever he says is what she thinks. And I also think she's a very old school female. And as such, actually carries herself pretty well. But 
he's a monster. I mean, he's not even a monster. He's like, he's a crazy person. He's a crazy person with all the power in the world. It's incredible. I don't, I, I, people, some friends of mine, usually men say they wish he would get killed. I don't, because then he'd be a martyr. I want to see him have a full-on, utterly humiliating, nervous breakdown on camera. <laughs> and I think that's possible. And then, I mean, I just don't understand why this person's running the country. He's really, I think he's fucking nuts. Oh, okay. Uh, you talked about discarding the Disney-fied story that um, didn't work for you. I'm just curious about, um, you're such a skilled writer, I'm curious about other pieces you've attempted um, and struggled with, uh, and if you've been able to resurrect those works in any way. Well, <clears throat> I've struggled with everything I've written. I have not, there hasn't been a novel that I've written that I haven't published, or I haven't, but I mean, there's one that I'm working on that I, it may be the first one, but the, I have written stories that I haven't published, but I've never written an entire novel that I never wound up doing anything with. I didn't write an entire, I, I wrote, <clears throat> I saw the thing as a movie first, actually, because then I thought someone else could write it. I thought I could there used to be able, you, you, I think you used to be able to sell treatments and someone else would write the actual script. So I thought maybe I could do that, write a treatment of this story. Someone who knew, knew more than I did could write the script. So that's what I wrote first, was a, like a 35-page treatment, only to be told that nobody buys treatments anymore and anyway, this is ridiculous. But um, that, that's the first time that's ever happened, where I pictured it as a movie first and decided I had to write <laughs> write it, but I didn't get that far into the Disney-fied version. I, I had to do a lot of research into horses because I did not know anything about horses. I spent three or four years learning about them and riding them and grooming them, taking care of them in various ways. But the more I learned about that and the more I learned, just the more I got into the reality of it, the more I realized that what I pictured. And when you're writing a novel, you have freedom, you can make unreal things happen, but I think if you're writing a particular kind of novel that purports to represent reality, you have to have at least some tangential relationship to it, which I realized I would not have if I wrote the ending I originally had in mind. What was that, the, the original ending? <clears throat> that she enter and win in an actual horse race, and that her mother would, and that she would raise, and she'd win money, and be a heroine to her mother, mm -hmm. and her mother would love her crazily and deeply, which I actually did include that last part. I did have a little bit of that last part, but... But the ending that you wrote was a little more, I would say, complex or Well, what I had in mind literally couldn't have. I mean, it would... The, I don't know why, because it's not illegal, but there's no such thing as an a amateur girls' horse race. There, yeah. There's, like, other things that are as dangerous, like um, hunter paces and hunter, hunter shows and fox hunts even, but... There's no actual race like that in New York State. To make it up, I'd have to do something incredibly elaborate. And also, a girl who, she would be competing against girls who had been riding since they were six years old and could afford the, to afford to ride every day, have the best trained horses, the best trainers for themselves. She could not. Coming up there once a month, even twice a month, she could never, at, starting at the age of 11, be good enough to win against somebody like that. Um, I apologize for being so close to the stage when I asked this question. I just came from upstairs. And I'm 34, and I was just wondering what would be a day in the life um, when you were 34 as sort of an unknown writer? I was known. I was just starting to be known by then. 
Uh, yeah, do you have to go back to 32? <laughs> it was just close. Well, most of them were really boring. At that time, I was I did have a pretty steady job at that time, although I didn't work every... It was a good. I was a legal proofreading, which I couldn't do at all. But they didn't find out for years that uh, so I could work at night. I could choose my own hours. I was a freelancer. So a week where I didn't, I sometimes would actually have a whole week off. Typically, I took. Uh, I worked three nights a week. But say I was in one of my unworking, non-proofreading days, I would get up really slowly, eat something, read. I used to read first thing in the. I used to read when I got up in the morning if I had time. I would read something, eventually I'd go out, do whatever, come back. At some point I would usually be trying to write something. I, I, I use those days as my writing days, either that or they would be big errand days. There was like the predictable stuff that goes on on the weekends where I would be there trying to meet somebody or meeting somebody or having a terrible time with somebody or <laughs> trying to have a good time with somebody. That just, you know, the usual stuff. That the night began. I'm just curious if you could say anything about the way that substances have affected your development, your thinking, uh, your ideas, your process. And I, I'm curious about anything from coffee to wine to substances. Yeah. You know, I, I honestly don't know. I don't take anything regularly, unless you count coffee and wine. I mean, if, yeah, I do drink coffee every day and drink wine most days. I don't know if I can say how that's affected my writing. I, I don't, other than that, there's no, nothing I take all the time, so I'm not affected by that. Well, I do take sleeping pills sometimes, you know, over-the-counter medication stuff, but I, I, I don't know that I could guess how. Why? Why? Do you, why? Do, you, do you have anything with you that you want to, do you have cocaine or, okay. There's a terrific book on uh, writers' rituals, artists' rituals that I read a couple years ago, and I, I finished and I came away and said there are, there are two things that are showing up in virtually every story. One is long walks, and the other is some persnickety relationship with intoxicants or stimulants, coffee, bourbon, opium. I mean, some of the stuff is uh, you know, where writers in the 19th century. Um, I'm just always curious about writers in there and their rituals and the, the way that the material world of substances affects us. Well, I never, um, <clears throat> I never was a believer in writing while high or drunk. I, I did once time have a good experience writing while I was drunk, and that was when I had been unable to write for days and I was going crazy with frustration because I was at like a retreat where you couldn't actually spend time doing that. And I, I was so... I was getting more and more wound up and making it more and more possible to do anything. And finally, I just got drunk at night and went back to my room and actually wrote. And it, it helped. And, but generally speaking, I wouldn't, I have to be completely um, straight in order to write. Worse, you're going to be doing edibles every day before you get, you get oh, working with. Well, <laughs> Could join me in thanking oh. Mary Gateskill. Such an honor, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and tolerating my ridiculousness. You've been listening to our conversation with Mary Gateskill. Special thanks to William Broden and Alan Minsky who recorded it. You've been listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. 
Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 